Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September 20th, 2016, and this is episode 1874 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to talk about anarchy. In fact, the name of this show is You Might Be an Anarchist If... Now, I know that those of you who are more than 20 years old, I guess, probably remember Jeff Foxworthy, and you might be a redneck if, you know, like you, you, you might be a redneck if, or what was it, you might be a redneck, right? So you say, uh, if your idea of fine Italian dining is Checkers Pizza, you might be a redneck, things like that. That's not what this show's going to be. And it's not going to be like what anarchists think and do so you can identify yourself as one because you already know you are. Today's show is actually directed at people who say, I'm not an anarchist, I'll never be an anarchist, anarchy can't work, there's no such thing as a successful anarchy, my god, this is all craziness and just foolishness and, and, and nonsense. Because guess what, eight years ago when I started the Survival Podcast, I was a small government libertarian, that's a nice way of saying I was still a statist. And I said the same things. And in my journey over the years, I have changed my mind 100% on this issue. And I, I'm hoping today to help some of you begin to understand that you may already be an anarchist and you just don't know it. I know that sounds insane. But there's a lot of things that I've told you on this show that sound insane over the years. Many things that have come out to be absolutely true. So trust me on this one and give me a shot. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our two sponsors of the day. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. Hey guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family, this is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey, or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number's 21, and a dot com. Okay, so let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have the second Chicago fire. We have Dear Diary, How About a Zeppelin, and we have Tennis Anyone. We also have significant births this year. We have Harry Houdini. The escape artist and illusionist will be born this year. Robert Foss, the poet, as in Miles to Go Before I Sleep. Gertrude Stein, the author, she will say, There is no there there, referring to Oakland, California as a destination. And G. Marconi, developer of the wireless telegraph using copper and kind of spark gap amplifier and telegraph rig, he will build the first radio transmitter he is born in this year of 1874. I'm going to read for you, Dear Diary, how about a Zeppelin? Ferdinand von Zeppelin scribbles his first ideas on the designs of a new type of airship 
It is a rigid frame that holds together several balloons and envelopes within itself. His inspiration has not come to him instantly. It has been a process. Von Zeppelin was the official observer for Germany during the war between the states. Balloons were used by the Union Army to rise above the battlefield in order to judge the size and position of Confederate forces. In fact, General Armstrong Custer was one of the first to use this system, although not very successfully. As he was aloft, Custer asked the pilot if the balloon was safe. The pilot jumped up and down in the basket to assure the general that the balloon was quite sturdy. Custer stopped asking after that. Around that time, Von Zeppelin took a balloon ride and sparked interest. Years later, while attending a lecture, the speaker suggested mail could be transported via balloons. The problem with the idea, balloons only follow the winds. What was leaded was a lighter-than-air vehicle with a rudder and a propeller like a ship at sea. Von Zeppelin writes down his initial thoughts on his diary. And he is on his way to creating a lighter-than-air ship that can go where he aims it. My take by Alex Shrug, the word dirigible comes from the Latin word meaning to direct, thus dirigible means steerable. Germany supported von Zeppelin in his dirigible building program because he prompted it as a military necessity for the defense of Germany. But if helium is safe, lighter than air gas, why did Nazi Germany fill the Hindenburg with hydrogen, which is a highly flammable gas? The Hindenburg was uh, dirigible that suddenly burst into flames and collapsed onto a New Jersey airfield in 1937. The debate continues over how the explosion occurred and why the flames spread so quickly. Whatever the reason, hydrogen must have fueled the disaster, at least partially. The question I, I, I had was, why use hydrogen at all? The answer is difficult to find, but the reasoning went like this. The main source for helium was, and still is, the United States of America. Congress knows the German Zeppelins were used to drop bombs on Allied forces during World War I, so Congress restricted the export of helium. As the helium shortage forced Germany to substitute hydrogen, which is a lot cheaper and easier to produce, the downside in using it was that if it caught fire, it would burn really, really fast. Don't try that experiment home, kids. Your mom will kill you. I saw the Mythbusters episode that made a case that paint on the skin of the Hindenburg was the main source of dramatic fire, but I think the use of hydrogen must have contributed to the disaster in a significant way. I'm not sure about that. The Mythbusters episode was pretty conclusive that... Basically, the paint that was used on the Hindenburg was pretty much a recipe for thermite. And that's why you didn't see like a poof. You know, like a big, like if the hydrogen's ignited, you was like, Bleh! it was this flaming ball that slowly came and crashed down. Um, and it, it was really pretty much a thermatic reaction. I'm sure the hydrogen didn't help it not burn, for God's sakes. But um, that's interesting. Now, here's something that I find really interesting. So our government, in its infinite wisdom, said, hey, maybe we shouldn't give these Germans uh, helium uh, for their Zeppelins because they used it to drop bombs on us. But uh, by the time the, the war was actually raising World War II, Standard Oil through IG Farvin, and Standard Oil at the time was run by Prescott Bush, yes, that's old man Bush, that's George H.W.'s father, was selling an additive to not the Nazis for their, uh, their, their aviation fuel, uh, without that, their uh, their most advanced aircraft could not have gotten off the ground. So you can't have helium because you can float around in a balloon. But here's some stuff to fuel your your most advanced aircraft from uh, from the United States that you couldn't get anywhere else in the world. And they sold it to them all through the war. That's a special kind of douchebag. Because think what you want about George H. W. He was off in the Pacific Theater fighting in this war while his father was selling product to the enemy because it was profitable. My take by Jack Spierko. I don't think we need any more than that. Anyway, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show, which, of course, is you might be an anarchist if, 
with no jokes or riffs or anything like that, not really tied to Jeff Foxworthy. I want to start out with why you could be an anarchist and not know it. And that is simply because anarchism is not a political system. On some levels, it is an apolitical system, meaning anti-political. But in reality, anarchism is a human philosophy based on morals and ethics. And if you are a highly moral and ethical person, then at your core, you can be an anarchist and not realize it, specifically if you don't know what the word means or you've been given understandings or ideas about the word that that would make it hard for you to believe that would be something you'd participate in. Um, it, it's, it's a very misunderstood word. There's a lot of people out there that say we should just stop using it. We should start using words like voluntarism uh, and say we're a voluntarist instead of an anarchist, which is actually pretty much the same thing, though there are some you know nitpicky differences between the two philosophies. But I get why people want to do that. The, the word has basically been tarnished to a point where the average person is incapable of hearing it without immediately thinking negative, okay? But I don't change the word survivalist to prepper, right? Just because they've made the word survivalist a bad word, it doesn't mean I... Because this is how I define survivalist, right? Okay, survival means to continue to exist, and the the suffix IST is, is, is used to designate someone that specializes, So a survivalist is someone that specializes in continuing to exist or specializes in surviving, doesn't want to die, and prepares so that they don't have to die, so they can continue to survive in their way of choice, which means I think that most people at their core are survivalists. If you see a car coming at you, you use all the agility and skill that you have to get the hell out of the way so you don't get run over. It's a perfectly acceptable word. And I believe that when we start letting people destroy words, we start letting society be even more controlled than it already is. If you think of 1984, one of the components of that storyline was the removal of words from the language. The dictionary kept getting smaller. And you had to use approved words only. This is a great way to control people. So anarchist, right, means anti-archism. And archism is basically the meaning of authority, right, or ruling. So an archist is someone that believes in ruling. A monarchist, right, would be someone that's for a a a, a monarchy, right, which is a the rule by one, which is a nice way of saying a royal dictator. So a dictator appointed by uh, birth and lineage, where a conventional dictator may rise to power in many different ways, including through democracy. All right, so there's very various forms of archisms right out there, uh, uh, proactive archism. So you can have a socialist government, you can have a communist government, you can have a libertarian government, you can have a republican-style government, you can have a, a, a republic. You can have all of these different things, and still what you have is a state, and you have a belief that others should dictate how you live your life, where anarchism is big into the concept of self-ownership. So when we examine the core beliefs of anarchism and we start to realize anarchism is a belief, then it becomes much more like something that you can accept for yourself as a philosophy of life. I don't like making this analogy, and I'm going to do it more than once today anyway, but in some ways it's like a faith or a religion. It isn't, but it's like it. Okay, 
It's very important to understand it's not the same as, but it's similar to in some ways. And what I mean by that is many of you are Christians, and you have certain beliefs. You're also Americans, and due to that, you have certain beliefs. But at some point, your beliefs are counter to your beliefs in your allegiance to your state. And if you're a true Christian, when you find that point, you defer to your beliefs under Christianity, even if you accept the reality of the state and what the state's doing. So, so many of you, by your religion, say, there's things my country is doing that are wrong, I oppose them, but... I know that I can't change them right now, so I have to figure out how to deal with them as best I could, but I won't morally support them. Okay, That's the way that anarchism is like a religion. It, 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 when, when the state is doing something that diverges from your core beliefs, which I think that actually the core beliefs uh, in and of themselves of anarchism and Christianity are very, very similar. In fact, personally, I would call Jesus a textbook anarchist, We'll get to that later, okay? But when you are an anarchist, you start to see how many things you really disagree with. You really do. Because the, the, the core ethics and morals do not make a... I'm, I'm lost for the word right now. They do not make an exception for people because they have a title or authority, or wear a uniform, and therefore they become more evident. They become far more evident. So here's what I mean by the core beliefs. One of the core beliefs of anarchism is theft is wrong no matter who does it. Now, I think most of you listening to me today would say, well, that's, that's true. Well, to an anarchist, theft can't be legalized. You can't legalize theft. So you've heard the, 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 the saying, you know, tax is theft. As an anarchist, I believe that. And I believed that long before I called myself an anarchist. If you look at the, the guiding principles of the Survival Podcast, the 12 tenets that I authored for this show back when I founded it over eight years ago, there's a tenant on, on tax, tax, taxes and how to handle them. And it starts out with all taxation is theft. So that was me being an anarchist before I knew I was an anarchist. Now, just because you have a title like tax collector or senator or police officer, or clerk of courts, or what have you, doesn't negate the fact that tax is theft. Does that mean I don't pay my taxes? Absolutely, it does not mean I don't. I am a victim of theft when I pay my taxes. There's a difference between saying I won't pay my taxes because it's theft, and saying, well, a lot of things are theft, but there's a point where the gunman has superiority in the situation and you can't fight back. So if I have somebody put a gun in my face, and my wife's with me especially, and I don't think that there's a reasonable chance that I can defend myself either by disarming or shooting the son of a bitch, and he wants my wallet, I'm going to give him my wallet. Compliance, right? And compliance sometimes is complete, and sometimes compliance is to buy yourself the opportunity, feign compliance, to respond to the threat. But theft is theft. So just because I give in to the theft doesn't mean I see it as anything other than what it is, theft. So theft is wrong no matter who does it. If you believe that, then one of the core tenets of anarchism is part of your psychology. Now, if you're saying, well, I believe that, but I don't buy into this whole thing about you know taxes being complete theft, you can't explain away that concept. You either believe it or you don't. 
And there is no means by which I have agreed and contracted with the state and said, I'm okay with this. You've taken it without my consent. And you can say whatever you want about the invisible social contract or whatever. That wasn't something I was given an opportunity to accept or not accept. Right? You accept it by living here. No, not, 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 not in any way, shape, or form. I was born here. I, I didn't show, choose to be born here. If I want to leave, there's actually restrictions that prevent me from leaving. And, and, and in our country, more than any other country in the world, there's ties into my income for the rest of my life unless I denounce my citizenship, and they don't even make that easy to do. Plus, you've got to find somewhere to go where somebody else will steal from you. There's no place to go. There's no piece of the island left where you can be left the hell alone. This is where people say stupid shit like, we'll go to Somalia. Okay, Somalia is not an anarchy. Somalia is a state, Right? Pretty bad one, but it's a, it's a state. It's got government. It is a state. It's not an anarchy. There's no place that you can just be left alone. A theft is wrong no matter who does it. The next tenant is force is wrong unless it's used in defense. So unlike every other political philosophy, and, and I guess we can say that anarchy on some level is a political philosophy, anarchists cannot use force to impose their will or their belief on anybody. And if you think about the way this works, is if if you elect a small government conservative Republican to the presidency, then they still are using force on others where it's not defensive. You're still stealing in the form of taxation. You're deciding who can and can't do what in situations where there is no victim, where no one that's involved in the process is objected to it. You're not harming anyone else. Force is for use for defense only in anarchism, which means I can only make my case to you with logic and reason. I can't even run for office as an anarchist and then use force to implement my will. If I were to run for office as an anarchist, all I could do once I was elected is nothing except remove laws. If I was following my core belief, because all laws are force. Okay? All laws are force. Some laws are force in defense. Some laws are force for the agenda of the state. Those are the ones that are immoral laws. Okay? Uh, but if you believe that you should not use force against another person unless it's for defense, then you have another core belief as an anarchist. Those two things together, theft is wrong and force is wrong unless force is used for defense, make up the, 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 the sum total of the NAP, or non-aggression principle. And if you believe both of those things, then in your heart you're an anarchist, and your only conflict at this point is, but I don't know how it would work. We'll get to some of that today. But that's not even important, because this is about what you believe at your core, and what you should be striving for, and what you should think the gold standard is for society. Okay, not how we're going to do it. There's a lot of stuff that we know we can do eventually, that we want to do, that we don't know how we're going to get there yet. We know eventually man will walk on Mars. We don't know how we're going to do it yet, but that's a standard. That's, that's a goal. Let's get to that point so that we can maybe do more with space exploration. And I'm going to these corollaries to make it understandable so you have analogies to think about. The next principle as an anarchist is people own themselves. Do you believe that you own yourself, that you have self-ownership? And if you do, then the only logical conclusion you can come up with is so does every other human being. 
So if you believe you, you either own yourself or you don't, and if you own yourself, then everybody else should too. If you believe that, then you're an anarchist. In fact, if you believe that, there's nothing else you can be other than an anarchist. You may not be thinking like an anarchist fully yet. You may be still wrapped up in the dichotomy of, of politics in this country. You may still have trouble with figuring out how it works. But you're an anarchist. If you believe in self-ownership, which means you, that there, are, there is no higher authority in your life than yourself, and I'll give you a pass on religious faith. I'll try to talk about how the two ideas are not mutually exclusive at, at some point toward the end here today, but just let's put the let's put your obedience to God on the shelf for right now. It's not gone. It's still there. It's just not in the debate of self-ownership. Self-ownership has to do with other human beings, not deities. Right? I'm a deist myself, right? So I'm saying that in this analysis, I'm putting my belief and religion on the shelf, and I'm only applying this self-ownership to other human beings. There is no person with more authority in your life than you, and there should not be. And you have, therefore, no right to act as an authority on someone else's life. They are their own highest authority. Children are born into, I know this is going to be a hard word for some of you to hear, born into the captivity of their parents, and good parents Parent to set their child free at some point. And if you don't believe it's captivity, think about this. Don't do it. Think about set a newborn baby free in a field. It will die. Children are born into captivity because they're not capable of caring for themselves. They have to be taught how to do so. And as they do so and they rise into what we call adulthood, they then become self-owners as well. Now, if you believe in self-ownership, then what you believe is you have no right as an individual, to tell anybody else how to live their life, to use force and coercion on them in any way other than for defense of the life or property of another person. And if you believe that, then this is where it gets complicated for you if you still believe in the state. If you have no right, if you have no right to dictate the life of another, then you have no ability to convey that right to somebody through something like an election or through simple acceptance of their authority, regardless. In other words, since you don't have a right to take my stuff, and we would both agree that you don't, then you have no ability to, def to say to someone else, I'm giving you the right to take his stuff, and we'll call it a tax. For some of you, this is hard, but let that sink in. The entire concept of governance is that the people confer their rights to authority figures to act on their behalf. Well, you can only convey what you have. In other words, I don't have $10 million, so I can't convey $10 million to you. If I have $1,000, I can convey it to you because of something that I have. I can't say, well, I believe that you should have $10 million, and in that belief, I assign the value of $10 million to you, and money will appear like a magical rainbow fart out of nowhere. Only governments can do that. That's a subject for another day. You cannot convey a right you do not have for another person to exercise it on your behalf. So therefore, the entire concept of the state from a standpoint of, well, because this person's a tax collector, it's okay for them to take your money and use force to get it from you and use coercion to get it from you and basically use extortion to get you to comply 
is illegitimate because no one who voted for that person or put that person in charge had the authority to grant it in the first place. Huh? I know it's hard, but this is, this is the world we live in, and you either believe in self-ownership or you don't, and the minute you do, these are the only logical conclusions you can come to. I get that this is how society works right now. I get that this is an evolution of civilization that goes back to about 3000 BCE. I get that. And that, 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 that this movement since then till now is the reality of the, on the ground and it is the state. And I have pragmatic thoughts for you later. I'm talking about, again, mile high view, your philosophy here. Just like your belief in, in your religion of choice, including if your religion is atheism. Okay? Which, yes, atheism is a religion. I won't go into that today either. But if you believe in self-ownership, then you have to, you have to concede that you can't grant an authority you didn't have and you have no authority over another unless it's acting in defense. Okay? And the last tenant, and I bet you most of you are batting three for three right now whether you want to admit it. And once you have the fourth one, you're, you're completely done. The third one alone does it, but the fourth one puts the nail in the coffin, so to speak. No person should be forced to participate in anything they don't want to be part of. You should not be able to make someone be part of your group if they don't want to be part of your group. Let's look at it this way. Let's say you and me and 98 other people wreck on an island from a boat. And uh, we kind of get a bearing on things and we start to try to organize and figure out how we're going to survive. And after a while, we kind of get a structure and organization together. And you and 20 other people decide, you know what? Um, we don't like the way you're doing things right now. And, and we don't want to fight you for control. But this is a pretty big island. And, and the 20 of us are going to go to the other side of the island. We're going to set up our own thing. Hopefully, we'll all get out of here someday. But until then, us 20 are going to live here. You 80 are going to live there. You guys are on your own. We're on our own. If there's any opportunity for, for collaboration, that'll be on a case-by-case -case basis. And, and, and me and the other 79 turn to you and say, I'm sorry you can't do that. You have no right to do that. We all have to stick together. We need you because you guys are the brains of the operation, let's say. And we're the brawn. But since we're the brawn, we're going to keep you here. And if you try to leave, we're going to come get you. We're not that smart, but we can build cages. And if, if you won't stay on our side of the island and work with us, we'll put you in a cage at night. During the day, we'll pull you out and we'll have big guys with pointed sticks stand there and make sure you do your part for our social contract. You would say immediately, you would see the hypocrisy in that and say that's not okay. That is a state. That is how the state works. Now, you can get into all these things about, well, we have freedoms in this country. We have freedoms. That doesn't mean we have freedom. Okay? You have light in a room. It doesn't mean it's a well-lit room. It's a pretty simple concept. I can put a 20-watt bulb in a room. I can put a 100-watt bulb in a room. One is better lit than the other. They, they could, you do not have to have the complete absence of light for there to be insufficient light. And that's what freedom's like. It's like light. And there's a dimmer switch on it. And for a long part of human history, to be honest, that dimmer switch got brighter and brighter and brighter, and we're now moving into a cycle where we're beginning to turn the dimmer back down again. But if you don't think a person should be able to be coerced into participation in activities or groups or, or, or anything that they don't want to be in, 
then you're an anarchist. And those are the four things. If you believe theft is wrong, force is wrong, unless it's used in defense, people own themselves, and nobody should be forced to participate in anything they don't want to be part of, no matter what you say, if you have those four beliefs, you are an anarchist. And then you got to figure out what the hell to do about it. So let's talk about some pragmatism of the modern anarchist. First of all, we understand when we look at a stateless society as a goal, it's not going to happen today or next week or next decade. In fact, we acknowledge that we probably won't see a true stateless society in our lifetime as a complete option for a human being. I, I do believe we're closer now than we've ever been because technology's on our side. Okay? And, and I'll hold that for the last part of this, this group of segments here. But in the end, we accept that we are in a system that is unjust and unfair where people with titles and, and, and badges and uniforms and that have been granted privileges by people that never had those privileges in the first place to grant them. We accept that that's where we are. And there's, there's no way that we're going to be successful if we fight against that in a direct manner. If we use force against force, they have greater force, they have greater numbers, and they have the minds of the collective to the point where we will be seen as the enemy. So we do not use force in this situation, even though we could justify it in many instances in defense. If I were to say, you know what, this three-acre farm is my farm. Nobody's entitled to anything here, and if I make money selling duck eggs, or I make money doing my podcast on my farm, or I do anything like that, no one can come here and say, give me a piece of what you have. And if they do, then I'm right using force up to lethal force if necessary to defend my property. And if some group of jack-booted thugs down the road that were just some random gang you know, that lived down the road in a trailer park or something, decided we want what that guy has, and they came here and tried to take my stuff, and I pulled out one of my guns and I shot their ass dead. There ain't a single one of you that would say you have a problem with that. Okay? But if we put some shiny badges on them, and they say, we're sorry, Mr. Spirico, you owe Tarrant County money, either cough it up or we're throwing you out on your ass, and I resist that, I'm a criminal. The pragmatic person in me says, ethically, I'm not a criminal. But pragmatically, within the system of law that I exist in, without my choice, I am, and that's a foolish action, and I'm not going to take it. I also acknowledge the people who would be sent here are doing their jobs and really don't have much of a choice because they've been perfectly programmed to believe that they don't have a choice. And that it's my, my goal and my mission to educate people that you do have a choice. You don't have to participate in this. There are better ways, but I have to do that peacefully without coercion, without force. So there's a pragmatism there that even though I, I accept that I should have the right to defend my property against any and all theft, it's not practical right now to do so in certain situations. Okay, That doesn't mean I have to willingly give away every penny that they think they're entitled to. So I will use every loophole they've put in the system for themselves against their system. If I can deduct something, I'm going to deduct it. If I can reduce a tax footprint in any way, I'm going to do it. That's just one example. But it all comes back to the fact that I accept it's not going to happen. You know, in, in totality, 
immediately or anytime very soon. I have to deal with the situation and I have to use my philosophy in a peaceful way. Well, I'm not a real anarchist. The next thing is you have to realize the way you live is what you control. So it's not so much what others do. See, this is the problem when we start talking about anarchism to people. They, they start worrying about, well, not everybody's going to do that, or what about this, or what about... Listen, you already don't control the actions of every other person out there. You have a limited influence on the people that are close to you, your family and your close friends. You have a significant amount of control over your children till a certain age, but in the end, the only person you really fully control the actions of is yourself. And the current political system is designed to fool you into thinking you do have some control over the actions of other people. You do not. In the words of Plato, when it comes to the law, good people don't need laws to tell them to act responsibly, and bad people will find ways around the laws. Bad people will break the laws. So the belief that the reason people behave is because of a law is, is completely inaccurate. If laws made people behave, we wouldn't have a police force. We'd just have laws. And everybody would do it. And everything would be okay. It's not the way that it works. So you, you, you have to focus on the way you think and the way you live, and you have to let go of what others are doing because you, you just have to accept the fact that you never had any control anyway. That was just an illusion to make you feel good and to make you complacent and your little peace within the state. Okay? And the other thing you have to take into your mind is, well, why even bother then? Because only the goal of no state can ever even shrink the state. See, what libertarians say, and, and I want to stop here and I want to say something that's going to challenge some of you. I believe all anarchists are libertarians. Okay? Just let, let it go for a second. Here's the other part. But not all libertarians are anarchists. Because libertarianism at its fullest, most fulfilling level is anarchy. It's a stateless society. However, many libertarians aren't there yet. They're not there yet. Well, we just need to make sure we get rid of all of the laws that are you know, affecting consenting adults and against substances and things like that. There should be no laws against. Play. All very pragmatic, very realistic goals, uh, very good things. And But what they're saying is, well, we still need a government for some things, right? Okay, that philosophy has accomplished nothing in reducing the size of the state. Nothing. Because if you allow for it to exist at all, it will exist. Okay, If, it, if it's going to be existing, the, the state is designed to grow, and therefore only a policy of continuous attempted eradication can result in it even shrinking on a significant level. It, it, it's like looking at a tumor, and let's say we're going to cut it out. The goal is to cut it all out. Now, if the surgeon goes in and says, I can't remove all of this tumor right now because it's attached to something and we have to do something else first or whatever, then they, they, will, they will do a partial removal maybe. Or maybe there's four tumors and they can only remove three and one tumor has to be left behind because it's on an arterial wall. The guy will bleed out and die if I try to remove it in this surgery, something like that. But what's the goal? The goal is eradication. 
completely removing the tumor. No one's going to be like, hey, doc, you know what? Leave a little bit of that tumor behind. That's what, that's what political libertarianism becomes. But we want to get rid of most of the cancer and trust that the tumor won't grow back. Of course it will. Tumors grow back unless you get rid of them. You know, you have to, you have to eliminate the problem at its source and the problem is the state. Now, I know the state is performing functions now that many of you struggle with. Well, how would we do that? That's not today's subject, really. Just accept that they, all these things could be done in the absence of a state. Maybe we'll do a show in the future. Like, how could we do this without a state? And I, I think it's actually pretty well known how we could, including things like, well, how would we have police forces? That's actually not that hard. I'll, I'll put a video in the show notes today that you can watch, if you doubt me, as to how that type of a, a security apparatus could be in place with no state whatsoever. It would be more fair, more just, and more effective than what we have today. Challenges you find, watch the video. I can only do so much in one day. Okay, um, So our goal is elimination of the state, and we understand that only that goal is sufficient to even do what libertarians say they want to do, which is reduce the size of the state. Um, the next thing is voluntary associations can exist now, so let's do that. We should be forming all the voluntary associations for common ideals and goals that we can, even with people that don't share our complete goal. So some of us should be working with people that can go into town councils and stuff like that and eliminate stupid laws and stupid regulations and stupid zoning requirements. Some of us aren't very talented at that, um, so we don't. Like me, I'm not talented at that. I don't know the first thing about that. I have no interest in that. I don't want anything to do with that, but... If I can support someone that's good at it, I will. And if me being part of some sort of voluntary association enables that, then I'll do it. We can begin forming these virtual governments online, and we should. Virtual governments online is not a new form of statism. You think it's a government, it's a state. No, it's, it can be a stateless government. In other words, it's a voluntarist association. So we can do things, we, we can begin to write our contracts with others in this virtual world that is outside of the state's mandates. And we don't have to do it virtually, we can do it privately. You and I, if we were entering into a contract, can just sit down together, lawyer or not, and write up our contract and, and stipulate in that contract a path to conflict resolution should a conflict arise that never involves the state. We don't have to involve them. And we shouldn't. Every time we involve them, we empower them. So we need to be doing all we can with voluntary associations now. That's a pragmatic step in the right direction. The next thing is, if you can ever solve any problem without the state, do so and always try to do so first. If you have a, a neighbor that has a messy yard that's messing things up really bad, because uh, it's really bad, go talk to them. Don't call the police. Don't call code enforcement. Let me tell you a story about this, this type of shit, right? So I had a friend, a good friend, unfortunately passed away very young, named Hal. And he was pissed off because several of his neighbors had fences that were in really poor repair. Really poor repair. So he called the city and bitched. And like he had to do this like three times before they even sent anybody out. This was pretty low priority for the city of Arlington, Texas. But they finally did. And the guy that came out, yes, went and cited all the people with their fences leaning too far or whatever that was out of city code. 
Uh, but he went up and down the street and specifically took a good hard look at the place he knew the complaint came from. Uh, my buddy Hal had a perfectly acceptable, as far as I was concerned, um, porch on the side of his house, and he had built an overhang, like a, a, a roof, to keep shade on it. And with the way the house was laid out and all, this would be a side of the house that would bake in the in the sun in the afternoon. But with this covered porch, it was nice out there. There was some rule, according to the city, I guess it was an easement thing or something like that, that that thing couldn't be there. It had been there for 15 years. No one had ever complained about it. He got written up for it, he got fined for it, and he had to take it down. Because he complained. Because he complained. We've had incidences, we had, there's one incidence where a, a mother called the police on her kid to teach him a lesson, they ended up shooting the kid. And it was for some stupid shit, too. It wasn't like he was, you know, methed up and, and, and waving a knife around or something. I don't remember all the particulars of it. There, there's no good in involving the state when it's not necessary. My, my buddy would have either been better off just accepting the fact that those, those fences looked a little out of sorts, or going to talk to people and say, hey, can I help you fix this? But instead, he wanted someone else to take care of the problem for him. And it, it, it hurt him in the end. It hurt his community in the end. It hurt his neighborhood in the end. It hurt his neighbors in the end. This is what always happens when you use force to make other people do something. So don't do it. Never give the state an on-ramp into your life or to the lives of anyone else if you can avoid it. Now, if I see a guy run into a bank with a mask on and two guns in the air, I'm going to call the police. I'm going to call the police on that. I I wish there was a better option, but there isn't. So I'm going to use the, because I'm pragmatic, I'm going to use the best option that I have. But if I see some guy that's climbing over my fence stealing tomatoes, I'm going to look into it, but I'm not going to call the cops on him. And I'm not going to shoot them. I figure if somebody's stealing food, they have a problem. And what I need to make sure is they don't become a larger problem. And if I can do that, then I'm not going to call the state on someone to have somebody arrested and thrown in a cage because they stole a, a, a tomato. Can you imagine? Because it's not just stealing a tomato. It's trespassing. It's, it's multiple crimes that have been committed according to the state. Now, if I think that person is a risk to my property then I may take the action of notifying law enforcement, saying this guy seems like he's, 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 he's a problem. But in every situation, I'm going to ask myself first, can I solve this without the use of force, violence, or the state? Because as soon as I involve the state, I'm involving force and violence. So there's times where I might consider my use of force reasonable, but the state may not. So I may choose not to exercise that force, if that makes sense. Right, they're like I, I would be ethically warranted in using force here, but the state may say that I'm not, so I'm not going to, even though this would be a defensive situation. Okay, but there's also times when I would look at it and go, I probably could say that this is legit, but it's not necessary to use this force. There's other ways I can solve this problem without force or violence. I can solve this problem with logic and reason. You have to look at the state like your fist. Just because someone else is swinging, it doesn't mean you didn't initiate the swing. It doesn't mean you're not responsible for it. If you see somebody doing something, acting a certain way, whatever, and you wouldn't physically do anything about it, then you shouldn't ask somebody else to physically do something about it. 
which is what many calls to law enforcement are. I'm not willing, I don't think it's worth physical force initiated by myself to make this happen, but I want the police to do it for me. Where there's other times where you're like, I totally would be willing to do this, but I think I'll get in trouble for it, so now I have to use the system. This is the pragmatic delineation of the mind in this situation. And the last thing for the pragmatic anarchist today is technology is our greatest tool for human evolution. The concept that we can begin to develop solutions that exist in the cloud, so to speak, outside of the reach of the state is something we should be embracing. With, with things like the blockchain and Bitcoin, we've already created our own form of money. I think we've only scratched the surface on what can be done with that. And, and I, I want you to take that in for a second, what's really been done when it comes to something like Bitcoin or Ether or what have you. When Bitcoin first came up as an idea, before it was even uh, an, an actual thing, it was just a concept, I bet you 99% of the people in this audience would have said, that'll never work. Okay? And then it did. And if I, if I had asked you for a way to create a currency system outside of the state's control two weeks before anybody else mentioned or thought of Bitcoin, it was never out there circulated, none of you would have probably come up with that idea. If you would have, great, I believe you, but I think that you'd be one in 150,000 maybe, okay, that, that, that would have thought that way. It was always, we'll use gold and silver. I did it too. We'll use gold and silver. So what Bitcoin taught us isn't so much that it works, but an idea that we couldn't even conceive of was conceived of and implemented and worked faster than anyone could imagine. So if we see that as, okay, well, that's the final step, hold on, hold on. All that did was open up our eyes to what could be and what can we do next because it's, it's very reasonable to assume that by the time the, the, you know we, we get into the year like 2020, 2025, something like that, we're going to get to a point where we may be able to skin an economic system the state can't touch. They can say they have rights to it. They can say they have tax obligations. But we can probably do it in a way that they can't even get at. It becomes impossible for them to, 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 to get at. I, I know you think that's impossible, but you would have thought Bitcoin was impossible. People are working on it. What I want to move on to now is how becoming an anarchist by choice changes your worldview. I think especially for Americans, and I would say people that are part of the UK as well, once you become an anarchist, you no longer believe might makes right. And many people in the modern world say, I don't believe that anyway. And they don't, but they do. Because... When a bully who's just stronger than everybody else on a playground beats up the little kids and asserts dominance over the playground, they say that's wrong. And if you say, well, he was strong enough to do it, and look, he's got it pretty well ordered and run, and the kids are not hurting each other, and everything's, you'd say, it's, it's still not right. You can't just use force to do that. That's pretty much how the United States and Great Britain run the world right now. It really is. And, and what do we say in our defense? No one else is strong enough to do it. No one but America can do this. Well, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And you start to question all these things we're saying we need to do in the name of freedom for the world that are killing people. Do we really need to be doing this? 
Now, that's not necessarily anti-defense, but one can be pro-defense and anti-war, just like General Eisenhower was. Very pro-defense, very anti-war. Why? Because he saw war in all its stupidity. And if you think that's you know wrong to say that war is stupid, those are General Eisenhower's words. It's complete stupidity. It's, it's foolishness. And so when the TV says, well, we have to fight them there so they won't come here, you start saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This, this doesn't really make sense because, first of all, we have more problems here than we had before we started all this. So it doesn't seem to be working. But let's, let's, let's go and do the, the rationality test on this and see if there's any rationality in this at all. Let's say that my neighbor has been looking around my house and I think they might steal from me, but they haven't stolen anything from me yet. I just kind of feel like they might. So I go to their house and beat the shit out of them. And because I'm stronger than them, I can. And say, so you better not come over here. I'm going to fight you in your house so I don't have to fight you in my backyard. You say, well, that guy needs to go to that state thing they call jail or prison. You can't go doing shit like that. But we can do it as a nation. We can do it as a nation. We can invade another nation and, and say, we're going to impose our will on you. And because we can, it's okay. And because the way we do it, we perceive as being benevolent. We're going to destroy your country, throw your government out, and give you the chance to elect your own, which you didn't have before, so it's okay. And when you start to think about it, that's exactly what we did in Iraq. It's not okay. It's, it's not the way society's supposed to work. You, you can't even make the case that, well, there was this group of people fighting for their freedom there, and, and, and we looked at the cause and we stepped in on one side. We just decided we didn't like the way things were there, so we went and changed them because we could. Might doesn't make right. And again, it doesn't mean we're going to change the fact that that's being done, but you can change the fact that you support it. War becomes an absolute last resort. And you would think that that would be the way it is anyway, but it's not. War's on the table way too early in our society and has been for a very long time. To an anarchist, war is what you do when there is no other option. And only when there's no other option. And that actually works. That actually works. Because that's why for 50-odd years, the United States and the Soviet Union never went to war. They might have did some little proxy skirmishes in Afghanistan. Yeah, the first time, you know, not, not us there, them there. That was a proxy skirmish. Vietnam, Korea, yeah. Lots of little proxy skirmishes across the world. But we never really went to war as two nations. You know why? Because it was a last resort. Because the fact that we would irradiate each other into non-existence made it a last resort. So a lot less people died because of that. What if we could just decide it was a last resort without the threat of thermonuclear war? Wouldn't that be a better way to run the world? You also stop focusing on things outside of your control. So I can't fix all these problems with warfare in the world, so I'm only going to focus on them to the, the point that I have influence over others. And, and my main influence is remove your support from that action. We have to support the troops. I support our military because I know 
where their mind is today, and I know that they're doing the best they can under the circumstances, and I know that they believe in what they're doing because they're indoctrinated by this very system. And I know that what they're doing is hard, and I know what our government does is they take the most noble from us, and they use them like dumb, stupid animals in the words of Henry Kissinger for the benefit of foreign policy. And I know their tools like that, and I know that's how their leaders actually see them. But I know that they're, they're, they're in not all of them, but by and large, those that serve are the most noble of our young people. And they're doing it because of patriotism that's been instilled in them from a very young age, and they do not know what they do. And those that are not in a position where you think that Christianity and anarchism is in, in any way common, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he was speaking of what? Soldiers. Just saying. All right? doesn't prove anything, but it's an interesting thing to note at this point. So as a modern anarchist, what you say to yourself is, well, what can I actually influence? And you stop worrying about you know, who the next president is going to be. You have no say in that. And we, well, we're gonna, well, whoever it is, we need to hold them accountable to what they promise. You're not going to hold them accountable. The state is designed so that you don't get to hold them accountable. Well, should we just give up? No. But I'm back to my analogy I've used a few weeks ago of a fly in a window who, who, who fears stopping the fight so that it keeps flying into the window and flying. And if I just fly hard enough, I can see the trees and the sky and I'll be able to get out there and the fly ends up the next morning dead on the windowsill. It's expended its limited life energy in an impossible task where it never had an opportunity to succeed. Where if it turned back from the window which was designed to view the outdoors and therefore if I was actually trying to create a trap for flies that got into my house, I would put as many windows in the house as I could. A house that was all windows would be terrible for flies. They would very quickly choose a place to try to escape and die. The less windows, the more successful a fly is going to be. That's not why we have windows, but that's how your system of government works. It designs all these places for you to push against where you think you can change something and you can't. Even if you change something in a small way, the totality will continue. I talk about ants a lot on the Survival Podcast because ants are into preparedness, obviously, the ant and the grasshopper story. Well, there's an enemy of the ant. The enemy of the ant is called ant lion. We also call them doodle bugs. This is a real thing. I'm not making it up. If you catch one of these things and look at it, there's some sort of larva that turns into some other animal. I'm not really sure what they turn into. They look like some kind of science fiction nightmare, except they're little, so they're cute. They live in a, a hole in the ground, and they create what looks like a little crater, and they always go in soft soil, sandy soil, things like that. They don't ever go in clay or hard dirt. And when an ant comes along, and if you, if you think I'm making this crap up, guys, look it up online. When an ant comes along and goes into that little crater, it starts trying to run as fast as it can. And the faster it runs, the faster the sand falls out from under its feet. And as it's struggling and trying to get up over the rim of the antlion den, the antlion spits dirt at the ant 
and knocks the ant down into this thing that looks kind of like, you know, um, in Return of the Jedi, they have the thing that lives in the ground they're going to throw and feed the the people to as an execution. It's kind of like that type of thing. Like it pulls them down underground and eats them. If that ant were to slow down and move slowly out, it could escape every time. The trap is not that effective. The trap relies on panic, which an ant is going to do, because as soon as it slips, it goes faster and faster, which makes the problem worse, and then, boom, hits you with the dirt, down you go, down the hole. This is the state's trap. Your, your belief that voting is your civic duty as though one of these traitors is entitled to your vote, and then you push there. The, the antlion trap takes many, many forms in our society. A news story going on for three weeks about a football player not standing up for the national anthem. You're angry about it. Guess what? As a people, our people can only be really angry about one thing at a time. And if that's what you choose to really be angry out as a population, well, the fact that your government wipes its ass with the Constitution and Declaration of Independence on a daily basis, you don't have time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. So this, this concept of pushing on things that you have no effect on is how you're controlled. So you focus on the things you actually... So you're not quitting. What you're doing is redirecting your energy to where you actually can have influence on your own life and those around you, and those you choose to voluntarily associate with. And in this, you find an inner peace. And this is the place I'm going to make the analogy again that I want to make sure I'm saying is an analogy. Anarchism is not a faith. But you, you get an inner peace that's a lot like inner pieces that come from religions. A knowledge that in the end, the world is what the world is. And with religion, it, uh, part of the inner peace is, I'm doing what's right, and I'll have a reward someday elsewhere. And I'll do the best that I can while, I'll do the best I can while I'm here. I will, I will be good to my brothers and sisters on the planet, or, or whatever it is, depending on your faith. Anarchism works in a similar way. I, I, I realize now that all of this stuff is wrong. I realize how horrible it is. But I know what I can do, and I will focus on what I can do only, and that means the things that I have no effect on, I have to let go of. And it's a very difficult thing one time. Once you do, it's like you know, it's the red pill in the Matrix. It's done. And it, you, you can't go back to grabbing onto it. You'll find little concerns coming back in. You'll find anger creeping up or whatever. But there'll always be this sense of, well, wait a minute. Can I affect that? No. Okay. Then there's no reason for me to really worry about it. I'm going to have some concerns about it. It might bother me. But I can't really focus my energy on it. Like, okay, I'm, I heard this happened. I'm mad. Okay, I've, 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 I've given my emotions their outlet. What can I do next? Is there anything I can do about this? No? Screw it. I'm going to do something else. It's what we call proactive apathy. Proactive apathy. Apathy's gotten a bad rap in our society. Proactive apathy is I'm feeding my family. Instead of bitching about the shitty food system, I'm creating my own food system. That's one example of proactive apathy. The 
anger over a law that says you can't do something, what people consider the only option is to fight against the law. Well, there's also the option of finding loopholes and ways around the law where you can still do it anyway. Or you can do it illegally and get away with it. I know that really bothers some people, but if a law is unjust and immoral and you can break it and you're harming no one, shouldn't you? I mean, it was against the law to hide Jews in Nazi Germany. You were breaking the law. And if you got caught, it was a severe consequence. So if it's a mild consequence if you're caught at all, and it's very unlikely that you're going to be caught, and your life is better or the life of others is better for it, that's a pretty small leap compared to you know hiding Jews in Nazi Germany. I don't think anybody with a brain would make the case that those people were immoral or wrong. They should have been obedient to their government, which is what some people try to twist Christianity to say. There's a, a case to be made in Christianity for limited obedience to government. Quite limited, by the way. But there's no case that you can make in Christianity for allegiance to government. None. A none. I am very loyal to the concept that is America as it pertains to my brothers and sisters that live in this land we call America. My allegiance to the state is, is at this point, frankly, nil. The state should earn patriotism if there is to be any at all. And, and what are they doing to earn it from me right now? Stealing from me? Bombing countries that did nothing to us? Spending billions propping up governments all around the world while, while, while people at here at home go hungry? Giving billions in, in military aid to nations that don't even really like us? While our veterans that we're told we're supposed to admire so much wait for VA and die on a waiting list because we don't have the funding, but we have the funding to, to provide freaking tactical aircraft to other countries? Are you kidding me? And I'm supposed to be have allegiance to this? The ideals of American are freedom. I'm a, I have allegiance to freedom. Liberty. I have allegiance to that. The sanctity of life, I have allegiance to. The pursuit of happiness, I have allegiance to. The state ever gets in line with that, maybe they'll get some allegiance from me. And in all of this, it sounds like, well, you're shirking things to people because you're conditioned to believe that. Well, you're doing, you're supposed to do these things. This is civics. We teach them, we learn this in school. We call that programming, right? But what you find is your obligations increase. They do not decrease. We've talked about some of them today. If, if I am required to try to solve a problem with a neighbor, for instance, before I involve the state, my obligations just went up. My responsibilities just got greater. So now, instead of dialing 911 when it's not a freaking emergency because some guy next door has the music up too loud, I have to figure out how to deal with that person. And I might even have to say, you know what? This isn't the time to talk to him about it. Because this is going to be a confrontation. He's over there with some friends or whatever. He's going to like bow up in front of them. He's going to feel like he's being called out. He's going to be saying like he has to do this. But if I wait until Monday morning when I see him get in his car to go to work and say, Hey, Tom, can I talk to you for a minute? And it's just us. And I say, Look, man, 
I know, you know, when I was younger, I liked to have music and all too. But, you know, when you have friends over, could you, could you turn it down a little bit? I mean, I work nights or whatever, whatever the reason for it is, you know. And, and it was just a bit loud. Maybe you can move to the other side of the house. I don't know, but could you, could you, could you, you know, could you help me out with this? Because it's an issue for us. And we're neighbors and we should work out the issues ourselves. That's a much bigger responsibility than, uh, yeah, my neighbor's got the music up real loud and it's annoying me and it's breaking a town ordinance over noise. Which one requires greater responsibility? If I am going to create voluntary associations with people so we can carry out business outside of the realm of the state, that's more complicated, which is why so few people do it, than it is to just go along to get along. In every way you measure it, just because it's proactive apathy doesn't mean it's less responsibility. It becomes more responsibility. And the more we move towards an anarchist society, the more personally responsible we have to be as individuals. You want security in an anarchist society? You either provide your own or you're going to have to pay somebody for it. <gasps> no. Yes. What, somebody should provide you security just because you exist? Right? I mean, on that, you can watch the video that I'll put out for you today on how we would handle security and conflict resolutions in in an, a stateless society. But yeah, if, if you're not going to have a state pick up the garbage, then you're going to have to figure out what to do with your garbage. Whether it's hire a private company, whether it's create a zero-waste system, whatever it is, got to figure it out for yourself. If the state isn't going to mandate that a utility company provide you a utility, then you have to, to contract with a company on a willing basis to do that. It requires extensively more responsibility the closer you get towards it. The less the state does for you, the more you're responsible for. Pretty simple. And because of that, you become a systems thinker and you become solution-oriented. You stop worrying about why things suck and start saying, well, what can I do about it? So that's something we teach all the time here. You see, again, th this concept of anarchism has been so slandered that you don't know that I'm teaching it to you all the time, not just when I talk about it. When I teach you about systems thinking and solutions thinking, I'm teaching you to be an anarchist, whether you know it or not. It's not nefarious. I've never hidden the fact, but I just don't point it out all the time. As soon as you begin systems thinking, in other words, okay, here's where I live, and here's how I'm going to manage my life. Here's how I'm going to set everything up. You're taking all these responsibilities the state usually sees to, and you're seeing to them for yourself. That's anarchism. And anarchism's in your life every day. Okay? No one from the state comes to your house and says, this is how you'll be dressing today. If you're in the military, you have a uniform, I get that. But otherwise, you mean... Even even when you're in the military, when you're off, you wear blue jeans or shorts. It's up to you. No one tells you who to marry. You know, how, if we can make the decision for ourselves as to who to marry, there's a lot of other decisions the state's making for us that I, I think we'd be okay making for ourselves. We could decide how and who provides our security for us. We don't we don't need a monopoly for the state on that, with multiple hierarchies. We can choose who we associate with. We don't have to be told who to associate with. And I do want to say something here for 
those of you of the Christian persuasion that for some reason think that precludes you having an anarchist philosophy. I'll even leave the whole fact that Jesus was an anarchist out of this because that would go into a whole theological lesson that will take 20 minutes that I don't have. But this is the only way that I've heard that argued in an intelligent manner from Christians who are libertarians to the extreme but can't make that last step that because they believe in an eternal kingdom that God will rule, they can't be an anarchist because God will be the ruler. Okay, I don't share your faith. None of you believe God will force me to be part of that kingdom. So there's nothing inconsistent with anarchy. An anarchist group can choose a king if they want to, as long as everybody agrees to it and everybody's free to leave if they don't want to be there anymore. It, it, again, all things in an anarchy are by choice and voluntary association. And how does an anarchist society handle a problem when it's it's not something that warrants killing the guy, but he just won't do what's necessary to be part of that group? Banishment. Throw him out. Isn't that what you believe? So... Anarchy is compatible. I don't know about some of the other religions of the world, but it's certainly compatible with Christianity. I would say, based on my understanding of Judaism, it's it's pretty compatible with, with Judaism. I don't know very much about the Islamic faith, so I don't know. I know a lot of what we're told that the Islamic faith believes, that that's not what most people that are Islamics believe, but it's what some do, and it's probably not very compatible with that version of it. Anarchism is certainly not compatible with fundamentalist Christianity. It, it really isn't. If you look at the way fundamentalist Christianity leverages the state to imply its will on others, it's not. It's totally compatible with fundamentalist Christianity if it only applies to the fundamentalists that choose to be fundamentalists. As long as it doesn't apply to anybody else. See, that's the thing about anarchy. You can have as much government as you want in your life in an anarchy you just can't compel others to be part of it and you can't compel others to stay there, there's absolutely no reason we couldn't have a society that's pretty much an anarchist society existing within a status society as long as the state would say oh you're one of those people you don't participate in our stuff okay well if you're going to use our roads well charge me a fee for using the roads they're going to do it anyway. It's called tolls and gas taxes. I'll pay those. You don't have to force me to do that. I'll choose to do that. Right? Well, what if you're riding with somebody else? Well, they paid the toll on my behalf. Don't worry about it. But you don't get my income. You don't get to tax my property. Well, that pays for our schools. Well, I'm not using your schools. So I'm not paying for them. Now, I don't think it's very realistic that we're going to get there, but... It's that type of thinking that will get as close as possible. I don't have a problem with the state providing services. I have a problem with my inability to refuse to use them. I have, the pro I have a problem with me paying for them so that you can use them. I have a problem with their monopoly on services saying only we can do this. That's where my problems lie. But again, what am I going to do about it? I'm going to accept what I can't change, and I'm going to change what I can. And I'm going to live my life as free and liberated as I can in body, mind, and spirit. 
And that's all any of us can do. And here's the thing. It's all you ever could have done. It's all you ever could have done. But what I'm trying to do for you today is to remove the illusion that there's mechanisms that give you controls because those mechanisms don't really work. They don't really exist. It doesn't matter who your next president's going to be. Your, your national debt will go up by trillions of dollars. We'll still be involved in parts of the world that we shouldn't be involved in. And I know what some of you say, but Jack, at the local level, we get, I understand, and I've said in this episode, the pragmatic view is there's people that are good at that and they should do that. And if we can, through voluntary associations, help them remove restrictions on the lives of others, that's a completely valid thing to do. I won't fault you for voting as an anarchist. Many would. I, I won't fault you for it. If I believe in your free will, I believe in your free will to participate in a system that may or may not have any real effect. And if it makes you feel good, well, it makes you feel good. All I ask for is the same mutual respect. Respect my rights to say that none of these people are worthy of my endorsement, and therefore I don't participate. That's voluntarism. Don't tell me I can't bitch, because that's like telling a woman who there were two guys and a leader. And the leader ran these two guys. And the, the, you know, the two guys, one's kind of a uh, really stinks, but the other guy's like a really fat guy. The, n neither one of them would be somebody that she'd be interested in at all. And the reality is one of those two men are going to rape her. And, and the, the leader of the two men that's torturing this woman says, choose which one of these guys is going to rape you. She says, I will not do it. And he says, let me tell you what. It's going to happen no matter what. One of them are going to do it. And she says, I will not participate in this in any way, shape, or form. And I'll fight back. I know I'll lose, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to entertain your bullshit here. And he says, hey, fat guy, rape her. And she gets raped. And you say, well... She can't complain about that. The other, you know, the stinky guy was probably less of a problem than a fat guy. She, or, or the guy says, both of you do it. So they both do it and say, see, it's her fault. She could have picked one, but now she got two. She can't complain about two because she had a chance for it to only be one, but her pride got in the way. Anybody that said that, I mean, you'd just be like, this guy's a piece of garbage to make that defense. That's what you're saying when you tell me I have to vote. Because I won't choose my rapist, I have no right to com complain about being raped. Just in this case, instead of being raped, that's more of a metaphor. Because I won't choose my thief, I don't have a right to com com complain about being robbed. Well, this one would have took less of your stuff. It's your fault, the one that took more of all of our stuff's here. Just ridiculous thinking. Ridiculous thinking. Stop thinking that way. Start thinking like an anarchist, because... If you believe in self-ownership, if you believe theft is wrong, if you believe force should only be used for defense, and if you believe no person should be forced to participate in anything they don't want to be part of, as long as they're not hurting anybody else, it's not that you might be an anarchist. You are. And if you say you're not, you just haven't figured out how to deal with the internal conflict yet. I hope today's thoughts will help you do so. With that, if you enjoyed this show and you want to support our work, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. By doing that, you can uh, support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Just click on Members to learn more about that. 
Next up, you can also support the show by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Yes, tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, um, you can uh, click on a link, go to Amazon, and do whatever shopping you're going to do there. It'll be really simple. It'll be really painless. It won't cost you any money whatsoever that you weren't going to spend anyway because all you're doing is doing the shopping you were going to do anyway on Amazon through the TSP link. That's the most painless way in the world to support us. And every day I, enter, uh, I do a review of an item on Amazon. The one I have for you today is a slick little product. It is a Winchester gunsmithing screwdriver kit. It's not a high-end kit. Um, I, I personally, in my you know my gunsmithing box, uh, use a, a product from Grace USA, which is a really good set of screwdrivers. I have actually several different sets for different uses, and they're not multi-bit tip things or each individual screwdrivers. But I mean, a set of those can be like sixty bucks, and I have multiple sets. And, and this thing is. Like the tools you see in the like like in the department stores or or what have you, the little kits that you see sometimes at like uh, the like the WalMarts and whatever around Christmas time and stuff. You know, you get your one little driver handle and all the other little magnetic bits go into it. But it has the 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 bits you're probably going to most likely need for service on your guns, tightening up scopes, mounting scopes, things like that. Um, it's 51 pieces, flathead bits, hex bits, fillet bits, uh, Torx bits, Robertson bits, uh, tri-wing bits, clutch bits, spline bits, and torque bits. Um, this is uh, the, 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 the stuff that you're going to end up needing, right, sooner or later with you know maintenance on your guns. And it's 10 bucks. That's 10 bucks. You know, it's not a snap-on product, right? For those that know the snap-on uh, tools that are like you have to mortgage your house to buy a wrench or whatever. It's not that level of quality, but it's, it's a damn good quality for what it is. It's a little box. It all, all the bits sit in it nice, a little cover. And, you know, it's something that fits easily in your range bag. And that's what I use mine for. I keep mine in my range bag. So if I'm at the range and something goes wrong between that, a cleaning kit, and some lube, I can probably fix it or I'm using a warranty card. I mean, that's, that's, that's the reality here, 99% of the time. And I can't tell you how many times I've been at a range and seen somebody with a maintenance issue with no tools and been able to say, hey, what do you got there? Oh, you need a screw? Here. Boom. Right? And you don't want to be sitting there using your freaking multi-tool that doesn't quite fit right on expensive fittings on your guns and whatever. This has proper size tools that will fit 95% of the applications you'll have dealing with firearms. But, of course, a screwdriver is a screwdriver, and if you got to f- turn a Phillips screw and it's a number two Phillips screw, you have a number two Phillips screwdriver, you're, you're good. So th- this is another thing I say with these. They're 10 bucks. Throw one in each glove box of your vehicles. You know, and then wherever you are with your vehicle, you've got this. Maybe throw one in your go bag. It's lightweight. It's small. It's compact. It's highly versatile. It's the best value-to-price ratio that I've found for this type of product. That's what I try to bring you every day on T-Spaz. Cool stuff like this. It's made by, again, by Winchester. It's a Winchester 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set. You can buy it through T-Spaz. You can read my review. And you got even I got a picture of the back of the package that gives you a description of all the bits that come in it, what they are. Anyway, hope you enjoyed uh, today's show. What I want to talk about now is the closing song. I, I thought about a closing song for this show, and I decided to play a song for you. I've played a few times in the past by Dropkick Murphys called Green Fields of France. I thought it fit well with today's show. Dropkick Murphys are an anarchist punk band, uh, though this song doesn't sound very 
punk. It is, it's quite an anti-war song. Um, it, it, it talks about finding a graveside of a, a, a guy named Willie McBride who, who died in the, the Great War, war uh, World War I, of course. And it discusses the complete inhumanity of that war. And if you ever wanted to make a case for not having war, reviewing World War I would be a good way to get there. Uh, what did we get from World War I? Primarily, we got World War II and the greatest atrocities of modern times. That's what we got out of World War I. Um, the United States deciding it would be a good idea for it to be a world power, uh, maybe. You could make a case for that coming out of World War I. Um, the death of more civilians than soldiers, honestly, by the time it was all said and done with. The destruction of life and liberty throughout the continent of Europe and around other parts of the world. All of those men that died, what did they really die for? What did they really preserve? Freedom and liberty? I don't know. I guess the question would be, was there a way to do it without all the death and destruction and bloodshed? Was there any way for that to have happened? And if the answer is yes, then why? Then why? And the next time you hear that we need to go bomb the shit out of people somewhere, I want you to ask yourself, who are those people? Not who are those people they showed me on TV with a mask and a gun yelling that they wanted to hurt me. Who are those people that will really be under the bombs? Who are the children that will be under cannon? Who are they? Is it really necessary for those people to die so that I may live, so that I may be free, so that I may be left to my own? Or is there a different agenda there? And someday you may find answer, yourself answering the question with, yes, this, this war is necessary. Sometimes you may find yourself answering the question with, no. Please don't be afraid to ask the question. That's something only done through blind patriotism. And blind patriotism is the greatest enemy of liberty. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Oh, how do you do, young Willie McBride? Do you mind if I sit here down by your graveside? And rest for a while in the warm summer sun I've been walking all day and I'm nearly done And I see by a gravestone you were only 19 When you joined the great fallen in 1916 Well I hope you died quick and I hope you died clean Oh, Willie McBride, was it slow and obscene? Did they beat the drum slowly? Did they play the pipe lowly? Did they sound the death march as they lowered you down? Did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? And did you leave a wife for a sweetheart behind? In some loyal heart is your memory enshrined. And though you died back in 1916, 
To that loyal heart You're forever 19 Or are you a stranger Without even a name Forever enshrined Behind some old glass pane In an old photograph Torn, tattered and stained And faded to yellow In a brown leather frame Did they beat the drums slowly Did they play the pipe lowly Did they sound the death march As they lowered you down Did the band play the last post and chorus Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest The sun shining down on these green fields of France the warm wind blows gently and the red poppies dance The trenches have vanished long under the plow No gas, no barbed wire, no guns firing now But here in this graveyard that's still no man's land The countless white crosses in mute witness stand to man's blind indifference to his fellow man And a whole generation were butchered and damned And they beat the drum slowly Did they play the pipe lowly? Did they sound the death march as they lowered you down? Did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes play the flowers of the fall? And I can't help but wonder, no Willie McBride, to all those who lie here and know why they died. Did you really believe them when they told you the cause? Did you really believe that this war would end wars? Well, the suffering, the sorrow, the glory, the shame, the killing and dying, it was all done in vain. Oh, Willie McBride, it all happened again. And again, and again, and again, and again Did they beat the drum slowly? Did they play the pipe lowly? Did they sound the death march as they lowered you down? Did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes play the flowers on the phone? 